everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when? And well, what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. Hi, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. In this episode, I'm going to talk about uh, a topic that is uh, really important to me and actually, you know, changed my family's life and I have since been part of and watched it change other families' lives as well. And so, I'm really excited to be able to talk about it today. Um, And I'm going to start right off with giving a shout out to Wendy Sawicki, who's an occupational therapist in Yarmouth, Maine. Uh, Born and raised a Mainer. Us Mainers have a tight bond. (laughs) I haven't lived there in many years, but there's something distinct about Mainers. And Wendy was super helpful to me at a point in my own parenting journey and introduced me to the whole world of sensory processing. Which is interesting, actually, when you figure that I am a child psychologist who's been on, at this point, by the time that I was introduced to occupational therapy in my own family, I had been working on school teams for, gosh, I don't know, 15 years, more or less, sat in a lot of room with a lot of really talented people. And my thinking at the time was that occupational therapists were wonderful humans and professionals, and they were really earmarked for folks, uh, for children who were in the moderate to severe autism um, spectrum, had moderate to severe autism spectrum diagnoses. And so 
uh, it wasn't something. Sensory processing was not something, and occupational therapy was not something that I thought about in the daily life of supporting families and behaviors. Um, and so my eyes were opened wide. And I often call this presentation or this talk what I wish I knew then in terms of how to help families understand the way that understanding sensory processing can change how you approach behavior, escalation, um, tantrums, hard transitions, these day-to-day situations that are tricky for all families. I bring an adoptive family lens to this conversation because Well, again, so really like there are these hallmark moments. I attend, my family and I attend an adoption camp through PACT, another plug for PACT, uh, an Emeryville, California-based pactadoption.org, just doing amazing, wonderful, ethical work to support adopted children of color. I attend a family camp and I began attending that when my child was four. And I was standing around talking to a bunch of parents at at this camp. And all of us, we had the same age children because we're grouped together because the kids are grouped together by age. And we were talking about some of the, I mean, our kids are amazing. They're awesome. Don't get me wrong. You know, this podcast in some ways is sort of problem focused and looking at what's not working well. But let me just say that. I shouldn't have to say it necessarily, but let, let's say it. My kid's fabulous. Everybody's kids that we were working with is fabulous. And we noticed some themes in the sticking spots that we were having with our kids, the behaviors that were challenging, that we felt like we were on the heels of behavioral outbursts and, and, and meltdowns that didn't really seem to make sense for the surroundings. And we all kind of head scratching and looking at each other like, are we all parenting the same child? And kind of chuckled. And, and that was part of starting me on this quest that I found a great occupational therapist. Um, and I started doing some research and, I really hope that today, what's going to come clear, this is going to be part one of a two-part series on sensory issues and how understanding them can change your family's life and help everybody in the house stay more regulated and stay connected while you're navigating behavioral change. So that's the goal. Here's part one. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about why the sensory stuff matters How do you know what sensory and what isn't? How do we think about the relationship between adoptive family histories and sensory needs? Um, Is it that adoptive kids are more likely to have sensory needs? We'll we'll just sort of hang out in in the introductory um, but critical conversation about sensory processing issues and the sensory system and how it works. Part two coming up next will be, so how do I apply this to daily life? All right, great. I've got an understanding of this, but like, what do I do on Tuesday and how do I use this to my, uh, to my advantage in terms of helping with soothing and regulation? So what I wish I knew. Here we are today around that. And I do believe this will change your parenting life going forward. Um, it did mine even as a seasoned doctoral child psychologist. (laughs) So this is, it's really cool stuff. So basically why, you know, is what I was saying, like, why do I have this conversation in terms of adoptees and adoptive families? When we look at, I mean, and and again, something that you'll hear me say in all of my podcasts, and if I don't, I should, there is no singular adoptee story. 
It's really important for adoptees to be telling their own stories. So this is an everlasting nudge, push, shove to make sure you're following adoptee voices as you're learning about adoptee life and adoptive family experience. And what we are starting to see more clearly, anecdotally and clinically in my office and many people's offices are that kids who are from hard places or kids who uh, may have been born to parents who were really under a lot of stress, that it's likely that there is a connection between, say, I mean, some there are theories, there are theories that, that high stress pregnancies may lead to high cortisol levels in utero, which impact the development of the nervous system and the sensory integration system, right? So either high stress, perhaps during pregnancy, then high stress following pregnancy, right? So you've got, you know, if there is a cortisol effect and high stress that may impact sleep, may impact um, nutrition, may impact factors that, that impact a developing fetus in utero, there, there may be reason to believe and what we're seeing in the data that there's an impact on the brain nervous system and the sensory integration system is related to both brain growth and development and nervous system development. And then for other folks who are adoptive either through fost adopt or placed internationally or privately, we look at early attachment as key factors in a child's ability to regulate. And part of what the sensory system does is help kids regulate. That is all to say, when you have early attachment, if the primary caregiver is distracted, is stressed out, is struggling with any kind of socioeconomic stress, mental health issue, substance abuse, what that means is that the primary soothing, soother teacher, mirror is not available consistently for this young being that's new in the world. And a lot of what we do with infants, when you think about it, right, babies are basically need machines. They come in and out of homeostasis and regulation. They're regulated for a bit of time and balanced and then hungry, so it goes off the rails. And then they're tired, so they're um, uncomfortable again. And they're um, having a reaction, colicky, whatever. It's basically regulate, dysregulate, regulate, dysregulate is what the infant experiences for months on end. And primary caregiver's job is to learn the cues and to help that infant find a place of regulation again, right? To model soothing, to show soothing, to, to, to help the child come in and out of a state of comfort. And if you have a distracted, unavailable, or intermittent and consistent primary attachment figure, that can also disrupt the, the, the patterns of soothing, right? And it can make it harder for the nervous system and the sensory system to work together to be able to um, calm and soothe. We also know that brain development is impacted by early attachment. So having a, a, a primary caregiver or caregivers that are doing eye contact, playing peekaboo 415 times a day as the child gets a little bit older, that dance of attachment. Holly Van Gulden talks about the dance of attachment. If you want to know more about that and that, thank you for that phrase um, and wrote a book 
called the dance of attachment, that that back and forth, the um, the turn taking that happens in an attentive with attentive caregivers um, helps right and left brains communicate and build bridges is how I think about it and talk about it with kids and families. So attentive, caring caregivers help build bridges between right and left sides of the brain, encourage the ability to soothe and give kids a sense of agency in the world as well. So if an infant is either born after significant stress or raised in a situation where caregivers are really inconsistent or they're in large um, care home situations so that very well-meaning caregivers just aren't available to do the dance and the back and forth and the turn taking and the soothing as often uh, as an infant in their body might need, then we've come to understand, I see it in my office all the time and I see it in homes all the time, that regulation becomes a significant challenge for kids. And that's one of the key things I learned when I started learning about this sensory stuff is our sensory systems give us huge clues as to what's going to knock us out of regulation and what we need to come back into regulation. So, and there's a key takeaway right there. Um, Just to reiterate, if you take one word out of today, (laughs) regulation and dysregulation, It's a lovely, lovely way to talk about bad behavior in a non-shaming, non-personal manner that moves us away from my child is willfully naughty to, wow, they're dysregulated. Like something is off with with their behavior and the environment in, in which we're in, right? They're doing something unexpected for the environment in which we're in. So taking away one of my big parenting tips as well how we think about our children's behavior, what we tell ourselves about why kids are doing what they're doing, really informs how we approach our interventions with our kids. Our own ability to stay regulated is critical. Try not to be critical. Try to have palms up energy where you're coming in curious and you're thinking, my child is struggling. Something is making it impossible for them to regulate. What could that be? As opposed to thinking, why are they doing, they always do this to me when we need to get somewhere, right? This do this to me, or they should be able to do this. Taking it personally or shooting a lot about what your child uh, should be doing is a recipe for your own frustration and kids mirror energy that comes at them. So it's also an invitation, right? It's a recipe for your frustration and it's an invitation for escalation with your child. So first and foremost, as we talk more about the sensory system today, it helps inform why kids are are dysregulating in certain situations. So tip number one, be thinking about your child's misbehavior as dysregulation. It it diffuses a one-up, agitated, come-at-your-kid energy that often leads to more escalation with kids who are already dysregulated as it is. So let's remember how we're thinking about what our child does really impacts how we approach them and whether we escalate a situation further or whether we're able to soothe and regulate a situation. 
So as I mentioned earlier, what informs me about this stuff is some of the brain-based research. Brain-based research is exploding. It indicates that there are both structural and chemical differences in the brain following trauma. Trauma can be unexpected living environments, chaotic living environments, can also be the loss of a primary attachment even at birth. We continue to understand more and more about that separation from your primary caregiver at birth can feel like a traumatic impact on nervous systems and sensory systems that are all pre-verbal. Infants can't put words to what changed with the sights, the smells, the sounds, the, the style of interaction with caregivers. Um, but we're learning more and more that, that even an early infant separation can be traumatic in systems. If you're hearing the roosters in the background here, I'm living in uh, Hawaii <laughs> and they're just going to join us on my podcast journey because they are uh, ubiquitous and they crow any time of day. So anyway, if they're punctuating the background, have a smile um, and think about what reminds you of home and what reminds you of, of comfort, comfort and everydayness. So onward. Okay, so early attachment is impacted by and impacts brain development. And as I've mentioned, we know there's a connection between um, in utero impacts and the nervous and sensory systems. But most importantly, and this is a really another key takeaway for parents, what the brain research tells us is it gives us hope because the brain brain is plastic. It's it is influenceable, it is changeable, meaning it can, the centers of the brain, the, the aspects of the brain that lead to regulation, connection, attachment, grow and build if nurtured. And the brain is fascinating organism. When I first started learning about brain science, my eyes would roll back in my head in my training classes and I would think, oh, that's so reductionist. Like, ugh, I don't know, something about that freaks me out to make things so brain-based as if they're out of our control or predestined in some way. And that's yucky. Those are my initial thoughts. Like, I don't like that. I'm a systems thinker. I'm an ecological thinker. I want to know what's happening around people. I want to know what the culture is. I want to know what the, uh, who their support systems are. All that's still very important. It's critical in development. And the longer I've been doing the work I do and the more research I look at, it is impossible to shake the impact that attachment has on brain development and that brain development has on how kids show up for attachment and how they handle regulation. So there's hope. There's hope through consistently showing up, through love and understanding, through day-to-day -day routines, through identity nurturing, through snuggling, through parallel play, through um, assisting and helping a child soothe that we're able to shift sensory dysregulation. So what is sensory processing? What are we talking about here? Sensory processing is basically the process by which information from our senses, touch, taste, sight, hearing, smell, and balance, more or less body and space, is interpreted by the brain so that we can respond appropriately to our environment. I use this when I train about this issue. I use uh, uh, the metaphor of an old school switchboard. For those of you who remember switchboards, <laughs> 
because <laughs> they're not as evident these days, but um, switchboards, meaning you've got all these calls, you've got all this input coming in from various lines in the world, what your eyes are taking in, your ears are taking in, what you're aware of in your mouth and taste, what impacts you're feeling on your body in terms of temperature or touch or the back of your chair. You are getting a lot of stimulation coming in from the world around you. And if your sensory system is is well-developed and balanced, your body almost sorts it without even really thinking about it. It just sends the cues where they're supposed to be headed at the at the volume or the intensity they're supposed to be headed. And it happens almost unconsciously. I mean, most of us have some kind of sensory sensitivities anyway, within, within a normal limit, right? Like I think about myself, when I come through the door after a day at work or whenever anybody used to come through the door after a day at work, uh, I, one of the first things I want to do is just get into comfy clothes. I just don't want anything uncomfortable or binding in any way. Like I'm always like, is it appropriate to be in my jammies at 4:45 in the afternoon, something soft and mellow. And that's a, that's a sensory preference. I don't like, you know, tight or uncomfortable uh, things against my skin, especially when I'm tired. I'm also a very auditory processor. Uh, I like to talk and I like to listen. And, um, if I'm in a car and there's danger that's coming, I'm in the passenger seat and, and I see danger coming, I'll cover my ears, not my eyes. It's interesting. <laughs> I'm more sensitive from an auditory standpoint. I can get overwhelmed with too much noise. And so I don't have a formal sensory processing disorder, so to speak, but all of us have naturally have some senses that are more developed than others. So if your switchboard, if your filing system can collect the senses coming in, the sensory input coming in rather, and file it the way it's supposed to at the intensity it's supposed to, then, then oftentimes you're able to navigate what is tricky in the world without having a strong reaction to things around you because it's all happening very subtly and, and without a lot of awareness. If you are a child or an adult who experiences a lot of sensory dysfunction, that happens when the brain can't analyze, organize, or connect sensory, sensory messages that are coming in. So it's very much like almost as if you would have a major traffic jam because the, the pathways aren't clear. The, the input you're getting from outside of your body is, is intent, more intense than, than you would expect. Um, you, you receive the noise as louder than it is. You can't stand the feeling of seams on your socks. You can't, that tag on the back of your neck is like so distracting now you can't even function. Um, you, you're itchy, you're uncomfortable in your skin. Like it, it, they become distracting. It takes what should be an unconscious process that's happening, filing quickly behind the scenes and makes it front and center and makes it really um, distracting and can be a drive to avoid it. If you're having uncomfortable sensory input that comes in, that sound is super loud. If the light is bright and feels like a strobe light, it's human nature to want to avoid the input that is coming in, right? And so that's how I think about um, sensory systems. One other quick note, for a lot of kids that we see in the world, there's that push to avoid what is happening and how their body is processing and making sense of and filing uh, and sorting through sensory input. There's another subset of kids who uh, seeks input that their body just won't regulate without input. 
So we have sensory avoidance that happens in kids because the input's coming in way too strong. And then we have sensory seeking, where this is kids saying like, I need this, I have to, in order for me to be calm, I need more stimulation, I need more movement, I need deep tissue touch. And we'll talk a little bit about um, the body and motion and movement. And sometimes you have a kid who has both. They avoid some sensory input and they really seek others. So another key point is just imagining that your sensory system and your child's sensory system is like a switchboard and they're getting bombarded with um, input all day and how their sensory system is able to file it and send it along and, and handle the intensity of what's coming in uh, or seek out more because it doesn't feel like there's much intensity coming in can really impact how they are acting and how they are responding to their environment. So to clarify, in addition to taste, touch, sight, smell, sound, the ones we think of most typically, most of us are familiar with those, there's also a vestibular sense. This, the vestibular system, tells us where our bodies are in relation to the earth, gravity, other objects, or direction. It keeps us upright, helps us sense direction, and tells us if we are the objects around us are moving. So sort of our body and space, our distance from others, how much movement that we like to have, um, uh, that's the vestibular sense. Proprioceptive sense uh, tells us if our muscles are stretching, contracting, and if our bodies are in a comfortable or uncomfortable position. So deep tissue input, um, being able to handle intense contact or not wanting intense contact, how, how, and it's still an element of how our bodies move in space. But so beyond sight, smell, taste, touch, sound, we have this whole notion of bodies that either need or avoid movement, or bodies also need or avoid touch, deep touch, like soothing, calming, burrito wrap-up touch, massage kind of touch. And, and those two things will come into play when we're talking about sensory systems. So as I mentioned, some kids have heightened responses and they need to escape the stimulation that's happening. Other kids experience what's coming in from the world in a kind of muted way, and they need extra stimulation to feel engaged or, or have their body be alert. And then as, what can be especially joyously tricky <laughs> as a parent is if you have a child who sort of experiences both extremes and goes between feeling overloaded and then also being sensory seeking. So how does this, like, how do, so we, if we're thinking about our children as, I really think about them as having two main systems, a nervous system that teaches them whether the world is safe or unsafe and signals their body whether they can relax or need to protect or defend themselves or go into fight or flight. And then the sensory system, which helps them make sense of, of the physical input that they're getting in their world and that they're closely related to one another. The ways that I see that, that what was really helpful for me as a parent, so going back to me and other parents I've worked with since, is that it really helped me rethink some of what was happening in my house that was tricky. So some of the behaviors that are impacted if you're having some sensory dysregulation, restlessness. So just these are kids who seek movement. They need their body and space to move. They need crashing, banging. They, they, they need... Um, contact, impact, and movement in order to regulate. 
noise making, humming, tapping pencils, bouncing feet, like constant noise making. That's stimulating actually in your chest cavity. If you try it, you'll notice um, it's, it's, it's a little bit of um, seeking behavior. Um, that, that um, crashing hitting, I know lots of kids who like bang off their parents and fall off couches and smash into siblings in order, uh, and not even to intentionally be aggressive, but they're just those kids that need to crash, bang, and smash, <laughs> that their bodies want that kind of, of, of touch and impact. Um, oral needs. So for those of us parents who've had good fun trying to get kids to brush teeth because there was something just super sensitive about uh, the mouth area or kids who go through biting phases, that's a sensory seeking thing. Um, overeating can sometimes be just being really orally stimulated. Um, kids who don't like bathing because the air is cold or the water is hot. Getting dressed with scratchy things pulled up over your skin or tags or buttons or pockets. Um, those can be ways that we see kids not want to experience those sensory sensations. So they don't want to change clothes. They don't want to bathe. They don't want the toothbrush in their mouth. Um, or they don't want to eat that kind of food. Food refusal is, can be a highly sensory uh, thing as well as food seeking if they like the, the sensation of, of crunching uh, food and snacks. <laughs> um, there's some thought that like there are kids who are especially visual, that are visual processors, kids who think in pictures and do well to learn through pictures. The opposite of my verbally sensitive brain. If you have a visually sensitive brain, that these are some of the kids who actually have the hardest time transitioning off technology. More so, I mean, we all hear all the time, all kids struggle saying, you know, setting limits or saying no to tech, but visually stimulable kids, kids who are, are visual processors and need visual stimulation, actually to soothe, right? How many kids in our homes right now these days say, but it, it's the only thing that helps me mellow out. It takes the edge off. So if they if they rely on visual imagery to soothe, they can be hardest to transition off devices. So kids' sensory uh, systems impact behavior because kids can be reactive to sights or smells or sounds, uh, tastes, touches. They may not want to stay in a certain location. They may have to get out of the grocery store. They can't stay at the county fair. They need to get out of a classroom where there's other kids misbehaving. So it looks like they're ditching um, class or they really can derail family outings if they can't tolerate being in places that the family needs to be because it's too much sound movement. Um, it, it just feels, I often say to families, even though your body isn't interpreting this way, your sensory sensitive child may feel like the environment that you're in, feel as though the environment you're in is like a fire hose or a strobe light. So when you can't figure out what's happening with your child, imagine that they're facing a fire hose or a strobe light uh, and, and you won't see either, but they will be responding as if they are experiencing being shot with a fire hose and having a strobe light in their face. And they're um, dysregulating, they're non-cooperative, they want to leave where they are, they're doing all kinds of other things to try to soothe that don't seem to make sense. So you can't see this imaginary fire hose or strobe light. So these are tips to help parents be noticing how they're thinking about why their child is having trouble in a certain situation. And then the emotional outburst when kids are dysregulated, when things don't feel good, when their body is sending all kinds of loud signals. I worked with a child who used to say that his kindergarten classroom 
look too loud. That was the actual word he used. No, no, in the class, it just looks way too loud. And this was an lo amazing kindergarten teacher whose room was just full of mobiles and student work. And he was like, it's too loud. It looks too loud. It's too... And, which is really fascinating when you think about it. it, looks too loud. And this child just needed visual clarity to kind of calm down a little bit. So, and, and then what happened when he was in that space was him not saying, gosh, I am very visually stimulable and there's a lot going on in this room. I need to seek calm in order to calm down. <laughs> Instead, what was happening is he was freaking out and jumping on chairs and running around and seemed really dysregulated and overstimulated. There are ways that the sensory input systems really impacts uh, behavior. And those are some examples of the ways. Tantrums, hitting, hitting is deep tissue impact. Crashing into people, deep tissue impact. Biting, deep tissue impact. Um, throwing yourself on the floor and kicking and screaming, refusing to move, some behaviors that may be familiar for us, right? Um, all of those things could be related to sensory input. And this question comes up for me a lot. Like, is it all sensory? You know, it's hard. Nobody can give an exact pie chart of which part is, you know, relationship trauma, which part is fatigue, which part is a child who doesn't have the skills to do what's being asked. But if we ignore the sensory piece, then we may be telling ourselves that these behaviors are happening for other reasons. And that's frustrating for everybody involved. So, I'm inviting you to imagine that what's happening could have sensory elements to it. And what we'll talk about in part two is why understanding the sensory system can be so important in terms of coming up with de-escalation strategies for when there are high energy moments in your family. So holding the possibility that what's going on for your child is related to sensory issues is super important in thinking about how to intervene with them, how to predict which environments are challenging, and most importantly, how to keep working with your child so that you can help them understand what will be soothing and regulating for their system. A quick note here to say that sensory issues also impact attachment. They just do. Dysregulated children are less receptive to connection <laughs> because if you haven't, if you don't already follow Dan Siegel's work on the whole brain child, um, this idea that when you have kids whose nervous system has been primed to, to tell them they need protection, that we talk about the concept of flipping the lid, which means when your child's frontal lobe, when the thinking, reasoning, planning, impulse control go offline, you're really dealing with their survival instincts. That dysregulation can be that, that primal, I'm not safe, nothing's organized, I've got all this jagged sensory stuff coming in, I'm in a new environment. Like it, you can really quickly be dealing with the non-reasoning part of a child's brain. That part has gone offline and until they're able to soothe and regulate, you're not going to be able to shape the behavior. So when kids frontal lobe is offline and they're in their fight, flight, or freeze place that is trauma-related and panic-related, it's really hard to, to grow that connection and to, to um, help those brain bridges build. And so dysregulated kids, it's, it's hard to stay connected and we want to, and that impacts attachment. If your child is dysregulated often, it's hard to stay regulated yourself. 
is it ever hard to stay regulated yourself? Um, I am not the most mellow parent. <laughs> kind of a high energy person. And it takes work for me to stay calm on my heels with my palms up and think about what my child needs from a sensory safety and soothing standpoint. What do they need for their sensory system? What do they need to feel safe? And how can I help uh, them soothe so that we can then have the conversations? And we're going to talk about that more in part two. So when you're, when you're trying to, if you're agitated and you're trying to get your kid to calm down, that backfires. You get more escalation. You get crashing, building crescendo of big feelings for everybody involved. And also, I mean, it's the other piece is that if you have a child who's often dysregulated, they're rarely cooperative, right? Most humans are not cooperative when they're dysregulated. So having a child who is non-cooperative a lot of the time makes it hard to feel close and snugly and warm. Now, as parents, we're grownups. Even if you have a child who is dysregulated, often we know it's our work to figure out how to show up for them and to help them and to recognize they're not trying to be difficult. But in reality, it takes more work to stay more calm and understanding if you are navigating life with a non-cooperative, with non-cooperative behaviors coming from your child. I want to be really clear about that. It's the behaviors that are non-cooperative, not your child as a human. So if if there are lots of non-cooperative behaviors, if there's lots of dysregulation and, and big emotional eruptions and big feelings and behavior that doesn't match the surroundings a lot, it, it is extra hard and extra important to stay balanced, nurtured, and soothed your own self so that you can be a container for your child's big feelings. So wrapping up this introductory talk, <laughs> Why is sensory informed parenting important? It was a really important lens. It was a really important shift for me to be able to step back during periods of time when my kid was not um, able to stay soothed and calm and regulated and cooperative to help me stand back and think, what is happening in the environment around us? What's going on that, that is too much for this being? What's he being asked to do that his system cannot handle? What input is too loud, too close, too far? Like what's going on that my child needs? It helped me be able to say, like, don't take this behavior personally. Slow down. It's brain-based. It's not my child's, you know, fault. Whose fault? We get into that. Was it my fault for not doing this? Was it his fault? It's like, It's just where we're at. It's what the learning piece is. How can I step back and think about my child as a sensory being who's getting input from the environment that is uncomfortable? And more importantly, which we'll talk about coming up right next in part two, is what do I do with this new knowledge that dysregulated sensory input leads to dysregulated behavior? All right, well, cool. So I can step back and I can say he's not doing it on purpose and... Um, I need to recognize that, that he's uncomfortable and that he needs skills that he doesn't have yet. That's all good and well, but then what do I actually do? Um, so what we're able to do, why thinking about the sensory informed parent as the kind of parent we'd like to be is that if we give the sensory system, the input it needs 
then children are able to regulate in the short term. So in the now, we will de-escalate situations that could take a lot longer, derail our family functioning for much longer periods of time. So in the short run, we're able to de-escalate situations and connect with our kids. In the long run, we are allowing kids the safety to be able to learn to regulate and soothe. That builds bridges, that, that builds pathways, neural pathways in the brain. We are reinforcing the, I'm out of sync, now I'm back in sync. I'm out of sync, now I'm back in sync. Pathways in a child's brain. And we also are creating attachment security when we're able to be safe and soothing for our kids and not escalate situations. So it helps de-escalate situations in the short run, helps us get through daily activities and daily life in our families. In the long run, it builds bridges and it and it enhances um, your child's ability to regulate away from you in the long run. And thirdly, it allows you to stay connected to your child uh, and understanding about things. And that safety and attachment only um, benefits children and adults together. So thank you for joining me for this intro to what sensory stuff is all about. Part two is going to look at how do I apply this knowledge on a day-to-day basis. Um, But I really wanted to tease the two out because it's important to, to get the concept of what's going on with the sensory piece and how we think about it. And I am glad that you are here and I look forward to you joining me in part two. Take care. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say I am so glad you joined and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlaraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter, keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, and Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.